Albus Dumbledore is the chess master, the head wizard on the cobble street, and the real main character of the Harry Potter series. In this episode, we're going to dive deep into the Hogwarts headmaster and three key pieces of information Dumbledore has that nobody else does, and that will all play a vital role in Harry's life and the series ahead. And it's only chapter one of Sorcerer's, or Philosopher's, Stone. Welcome to Belated Binge, the Harry Potter podcast that doesn't take itself or the books too seriously. Probably because I didn't read them till I was a grown man. My name's Zach, and I want to thank you for joining me on this trip back to Hogwarts as I reread the books and deep dive into each chapter. My goal with this podcast is give you the opportunity to go back through the Harry Potter books with chapter discussions with enough detail you can feel like you're in a reread even if you don't pick up a book while also cultivating new ideas and speculation to spark your headcanon, all the while not taking them too seriously. Celebrating the parts of these stories that were crafted so masterfully they completely captivated an entire generation while also calling it on its BS when appropriate. Also, a note from the future. This podcast has continued to evolve over time, and the more I've gotten invested in the Potter fandom, so, if the loose sports metaphors here in the first season take you out of your Potterhead, give season two a shot, where I begin Chamber of Secrets. The show becomes even more Potter-centric, and there are way more spell puns. The Belated Binge Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Belated Binge Podcast. I'm Zach, and I'll be your host throughout this journey, revisiting some of the most iconic series in recent memory that aside from their impact on pop culture have one other thing in common. I nearly missed out on them completely. When these series were at the peak of popularity, I was, I don't know, I either thought I was too cool, not cool enough, not nerdy enough, too busy, uninterested, or I was otherwise oblivious. Whatever excuse I gave myself, I was completely unengaged until many years later. That's the bladed part. But now that I've come around, they become some of my favorite forms of entertainment. So now we're going to revisit them all, episode by episode, chapter by chapter, moment by moment, taking a deep dive into world building, character development, plot holes, theories, themes, and we're going to give away some meaningless awards as well. That's the binge part. Together, they make the belated binge. And today, we begin our reread of the Harry Potter series with the first chapter of Sorcerer's Stone, The Boy Who Lived. But first... Two things. This podcast will have spoilers as we dissect each chapter, the character motivations, the impact that they have on the greater story. This podcast will also have the chance for some adult language. We're starting with a book you can buy in the kids section at your local bookstore, but I didn't read them until I was a grown-ass man. We'll try not to let it get too out of hand, but we're going to run a little loose sometimes. That being said, we'll start with this episode's play-by-play. Play-by-play. So the play-by-play segment of the Belated Binge podcast is where we give, you know, the play-by-play, the uh, in-game announcements, the recap of the chapter that we're covering for this episode. Uh, And this one, chapter one of Sorcerer's Stone, The Boy Who Lived, starts off with Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. This is perhaps the most iconic opening line in literature, although coming from me honestly isn't saying much because I'm not the biggest reader. But it also, I heard somebody say this before, and uh, I I really liked it, so I'm going to share it here too. 
Uh, it reads very much like Harry's sarcastic sense of humor. You know, as you know, most of the books in this series start right here at number four Privet Drive, but through the eyes of Harry, you know, in the summer between school most of the time. Uh, but since we don't actually meet our protagonist until the end of this chapter, it makes sense that we start here at number four Privet Drive and we get at least a little bit, you know, a little call out, a little uh, toss, you know, throw back, although we haven't thrown back to anything yet. I guess that doesn't make much sense. Uh, but, you know, a, a call out, uh, an homage to the sassiness that we can later expect from Harry, our main protagonist for the story, even though we haven't met him yet. But we will, as a cute little baby. Instead, we start through the eyes of Vernon Dursley. We get in- introduced to his family. Um, they're going to be a cornerstone of the series, and they're actually directly responsible for the safety of the entire Wizarding World, despite the fact that they hate everything about it. But think about it. If they don't take Harry in at the end of this chapter, the charm from the blood magic that Dumbledore puts on Harry, uh, he mentioned this in Book 5, Petunia accepting Harry is what seals the charm for the blood magic to continue to protect Harry against Voldemort throughout his childhood as as long as he can call home, you know, where his mother's blood resides. If they don't take him in, that blood magic charm never takes. Perhaps Harry never gets the protection that he needs. Perhaps he doesn't even make it to defeat Voldemort in the end. What kind of story is that? I don't know. But we're a long ways from that truly uh, being a possibility. In this story, we want to hope that our little baby protagonist is going to defeat the bad guy uh, at the end of the story. Uh, At this point, we're just meeting a grumpy fat guy with a nosy, annoying wife and a spoiled kid. In fact, we only learn about the Wizarding World indirectly through Vernon being angry at all these oddballs he sees throughout the day. We get Easter eggs for Professor McGonagall as a cat reading, no, no, looking at a sign and maybe a map. We get mentions of owls and shooting stars, but it all just seems like strange behavior, not magic. And Vernon isn't here for it. It's the only thing souring his otherwise, you know, normal day. Until he overhears someone dressed in a cloak mention the Potters and their son Harry. At that point, he's rattled. But he pulls, you know, a Taylor Swift and shakes it off or whatever. Is that dated? Am I old? I don't know. But what's truly ingenious about starting the series this way is that it cements the idea that we later learn is the wizarding world is happening all around the Muggles. Us. It could just be, you know, behind that brick wall or just around that corner. Or maybe we caught a glimpse of something odd in an alley that we passed a block ago. It's all around us, just outside of our reach. And this ends up being the perfect way for this audience that gravitates to these books, you know, in the first place to to be introduced to the world. Many people use fantasy novels as an escape from something, a way to get out of their own world for any number of reasons and get lost in a new one where anything is possible. There are people who still identify with this story as adults who might say, you know, the owl with their letter from Hogwarts just got lost all those years ago. 
just as there are 10-year-olds right now hoping amongst hope that their one birthday wish is that they're going to get their ticket for Platform 9 and 3 quarters. If we had just immediately jumped into you know, this world of unreal circumstance, this wondrous, magical place with unicorns and vampires and trolls and goblins and gold and magic wands and cloaks and broomsticks that fly and all of these things, leaving everything familiar completely behind, would it have had the same effect that it did? I'm, I, I'm not sure. Uh, the books would still be good, I'm sure, but this was truly, like, and still kind of is, a global phenomenon. Two decades later, we're, you know, still have this wacky, giant fandom that is just obsessed with the Harry Potter series. And I think that the sense of it all being, you know, just beyond our grasp has a lot to do with that, you know? It's also fodder behind one of the theories that I always kind of chuckled at. Uh, we're not going to do a big deep dive into this one, uh, more on you know what those theories look like here in a bit, but there's content out there for it if you want to look it up. It's the theory that Rita Skeeter was actually upset with how she was being treated in the wizarding world, and she wanted to expose them to the muggles. So, she wrote a series of novels about the events of the war with the Death Eaters and a bad guy named Voldemort, a chosen one who saved the day named Harry Potter, and she sold it to the muggles under the name J.K. Rowling. And for the record, that's one of the few times that you're going to hear this author's names mentioned on this podcast. In light of her recent stance she's been taking and her insistence of trying to get her foot as far into her mouth as she possibly can get it, here at Belated Binge, we recognize the controversy that has caused, you know, within the fandom. While this podcast isn't going to be, you know, the deep dive into the subject. It's not going to be your news, uh, recent news, current events, you know, a truly dedicated Harry Potter podcast. You know, it's also not a pro-rolling podcast. There are real human beings who have been truly hurt and offended by the things that the author of this series has said. Our nod to those individuals is to try to keep our focus on the story and the world that spawned one of the most inclusive and socially aware fandoms, perhaps more than any other in history. And whenever possible, we'll use the term, the author, because this story became something much bigger and much more impactful than any tweet the creator could write years later. Beyond the idea that this world could very well be real and happening without our direct knowledge, and beyond learning that magic exists, we learn a ton in this opening chapter. We learn that the Dursleys suck, Voldemort is the bad guy, he's been driven away for trying to kill a baby, Dumbledore is the chess master, Harry was orphaned and survived, he's famous, he's safer at the Dursleys, and that there's a mysterious letter that explains all of this that ends up being kind of the crux of the entire series in, you know, uh, written form. One thing that doesn't seem to get a ton of attention and it's just another example of you know, what an incredible piece of fiction this series really is, is where it begins. A lot of people are aware and have talked quite a bit about the Harry Potter series as a frame narrative, ring theory, circle theory, you know, whatever you want to call it. As a collection, it metaphorically acts like a record or a CD, if you can remember what those are, where it flows in a circle revolving around a center point. Themes in book one reflect in book seven, 
book two reflects in six, three with five, and four is the center point that everything revolves around. This has been talked about extensively by many, but what I haven't heard a ton of people bring up is that we actually begin the frame narrative in this very chapter. Our story begins when the Wizarding World believes that the war with Voldemort ended. They think it's over, but we're just getting started. It opens at the close, and we get most of that from the subject of our scouting report segment, where we're going to do a lot more deep diving into this chapter with Albus Dumbledore. Scouting report. For this episode, scouting report. Uh, this is where we we focus in and put the spotlight on one character. What did we learn about them? You know, what really stands out? What highlights uh, in the chapter can we uh, can we come up with for this one character? And in this opening chapter. Shouldn't be a shock, Dumbledore is the character that we're going to focus on for this episode. In this chapter, it starts with the Dursleys, and a lot of it is told from Vernon's perspective, but this is Dumbledore's chapter. This is the beginning of his master plan, all just forming and getting started right before our eyes, before we even realize that there is a master plan. And it's woven in, and we can kind of see little little things in this chapter that all just allude to it and and upon a reread you know it gives us kind of clarity on not only some of the strings that he's pulling but also a lot about the kind of character that he is without us even realizing it of course we know now because we know what happens but when we first read it didn't have a clue all that was being laid out for us in this chapter for starters his grand plan beginning From the text alone, we can gather that he sent Hagrid to look after Harry and told him where to bring him and presumably when to meet there. He made the call to take Harry from the Wizarding World and bring him to his aunt and uncle's house in Little Whinging. He's the one that Professor McGonagall is seeking for answers to the rumors that she's been hearing. Which, when did she hear these rumors? How does she know about all of the crazy stuff that's been happening all day? She's been a cat sitting outside the Dursleys all day. Did she just listen to the news through the window and that's how she knew about, you know, owls and shooting stars and whatnot? You know, that that might be a little bit of a stretch. But anyways, she knows Dumbledore is the one calling the shots. And this is where he's going to be. So this is where she needs to be if she's going to get the answers that she's seeking. We also learn through her that Dumbledore, you know, he's the guy, he's the dude, he's the top dog, he's the one to, you know, not to be effed with, if you will. He may not be the head wizard in charge of government, but he's definitely the head wizard, you know, on the street, even, I guess, if the street's cobbled. Um, You know, she tells us that Dumbledore is the only one that Voldemort ever feared, and if the person who's terrorized an entire secret society for 11 years if that person is scared of you you're a badass we also learn about his belief that Voldemort is coming back despite the fact that he won't tell Professor McGonagall this directly which is more about his character that we're going to dive into in a little bit but this belief is the foundation for his entire grand plan, his master plan that he's putting into action with Harry. It's all based on this belief that Voldemort's going to come back. 
And at this point, what we didn't realize the first time we read this is that he's working with information that we don't have. There's, I'm sure, tons of it. But what we're going to focus on in this episode is three in particular pieces of information that Dumbledore knows at this moment that nobody else does. And he's not sharing with anybody else. One is the prophecy. The reason Voldemort went after Harry in the first place was due to a prophecy that Dumbledore was witness to. He knows the entirety of what was said. And he knows the piece that was overheard. So that Voldemort heard, you know, because Snape sucks and ran to relay it to him. This is the first of many, many times on this podcast, I think, that we're going to say Snape sucks. He also understands the power of prophecy. Although he does mention later in the books that he was never a big believer or at least didn't practice the subject himself. Unlike other studious characters that we come to know and love, like Hermione, who writes it off as a form of magic that's not even worth considering because she couldn't learn it in a textbook, uh, we also hear Professor McGonagall herself you know, turn up her nose at divination multiple times with the way that she treats Trelawney at the school that they both teach at. Both of these witches are extremely book smart, and that's how we learn Dumbledore was. Very book smart. Perhaps the most book smart, like, you know, ever. But he understands that while it may not be a field of magic that you can read about, you know, in a book and learn how to do and hone and craft in that way, and thus shouldn't be any less worth his attention, it's still a very valuable gift to be respected and, when appropriate, feared. We have a theory in the Theory Corner episode of Patreon, where we believe that his respect for divination actually began. Which, spoiler, we're theorizing that it has to do with his relationship with Geller Grindelwald. If you'd like to dive into that theory, um, which we believe is a belated binge original, we at least, I haven't heard it brought up by anybody else. So I think, or at least... When coming up with it uh, and thinking it through, it was an original thought. If you want to dive into that, head over to Patreon and become a patron. Uh, This will give you access to additional content like our Theory Corner, uh, where we're going to dive into some of our favorite theories and some of our own, like this one, as well as offer early access to podcast episodes and some more perks that we will announce later. Uh, We'll also be working with our patrons to determine what perks would be most interesting and valuable to them, you know, for their patronage. So that's the first, the prophecy is the first piece of information that Dumbledore has that we just simply don't, that goes into his thinking that Voldemort's still around somewhere and alive. The second thing is the curse on the defense against the dark arts position at Hogwarts. Only Dumbledore at this point in the story knows about that curse. He's been seeking out a new professor every year for that class since he turned it down to Voldemort, which is what the past, by Harry's time at Hogwarts, it was, what, 40 years or something? So at this moment, maybe 30, I don't know, 25, a whole bunch, a whole bunch 
of years that he's been having to cycle through these defense against the dark arts teachers and he's the only one that knows why or at least is assuming why based on that conversation that he had at uh with Voldemort while it's unlikely of course you know the one hole that can be poked in this thought that we had is that in the past 24 hours he's had to hire a new professor for that position but it's highly likely that he has either at least learned that he's going to have to fill it or he will soon need to fill it uh, before the school year starts and that's just going to be affirmation to the theory that he's working on in or working under i guess you could say uh in that voldemort is not actually dead because if voldemort was dead presumably the curse on that position would be lifted because voldemort wouldn't be around anymore And the fact that that curse is still in place, Dumbledore knows that Voldemort is not dead. He's just not around. And thus, knowing who Tom Riddle is and Voldemort is, he knows he's not going to stop trying to come back until he can get the power that he seeks. If that curse is still in place, Voldemort's still around, Dumbledore would know. What's interesting here to me too is that i wonder if dumbledore is already suspecting horcruxes or at least one horcrux the text leads us to believe later in the story that he didn't expect horcruxes until harry brings him the diary at the end of book two but is that the moment that he removed all the horcrux books from the school library i doubt it slughorn tells tom riddle in that you know memory scene that Dumbledore's particularly strict on the topic 50 years prior. So I think that when Dumbledore became headmaster is when he pulled the Horcrux books. And by the time that Harry's parents were murdered, he's very well uh, aware of how Horcruxes work. And if that's the case, in this moment, he has to at least be considering a Horcrux as a way that Voldemort was able to survive that rebounding killing curse. The third thing that we wanted to kind of focus on as information that Dumbledore has in this moment that the reader simply doesn't uh, is that Dumbledore knows about Lily's sacrifice. The specifics of the sacrifice. Not just that she and James died, but Harry didn't. He knows that she sacrificed herself in order to save her son. If he didn't know this, he couldn't have taken the steps needed to invoke the blood protection charm that would protect Harry later in life. He wouldn't be bringing Harry to the Dursleys in this chapter now. But how (laughs) is the question, like, how does he know about the sacrifice? He wasn't there when she did it. We have a theory on this as well. Uh, and we're going to put that one in Theory Corner too. So this episode, you're actually getting two bonus theory pods over on Patreon, which again, I think this one is another uh, original theory to Belated Binge. So if you want to hear more about it and uh, dive into that one, join us over on Patreon. But he knows all of these things that have happened in this moment that lead him to believe that Voldemort will try to come back Yet, none of it uh, is being shared with anybody else, particularly with Professor McGonagall in this moment, or Hagrid, which is laying the foundation 
for the Dumbledore character at the very beginning of this story. It completely solidifies upon a reread. This is the Dumbledore story. We get it from Harry's perspective, but the moving pieces, the events that take place, the plot moving forward, this is the Dumbledore story. He's the one controlling all of it behind the scenes. All the way up through the seventh book, when he's not even alive, it's his book series as much, or perhaps more even, than it is Harry's. Uh, I've heard some people uh, complain about the Fantastic Beasts movie series. Why, why is Newt there? Why, why is Tina there? Why, why, is, uh, why is Jacob there? If this is just the Dumbledore Grindelwald story, why do we have these other characters? Why is it being told you know, essentially through a protagonist in Newt? I would argue that that's what the Harry Potter series was too. It's ultimately the Dumbledore versus Voldemort story with Harry being the protagonist and the way that Dumbledore was going to defeat Voldemort in the end. So what did we learn about his character? Two primary traits are clear about his character in this initial chapter of the series. In this chapter, he didn't call on Hagrid to retrieve Harry by accident. He deliberately chose him to be the one to drop Harry off. This was part of the master plan. He's setting Hagrid up as a protector and as a friend for Harry from the very beginning, which is a very valuable chess piece. Think about it. Hagrid is developing a bond with Harry as a child. So when Harry comes back into the wizarding world, it'll be natural for Hagrid to take up that, you know, protector and confidant uh, role with Harry when he comes back. Also, he'll be happy to do it. Of all the things that you could ask a half giant to do in a war you know taking care of a baby and bringing him to uh, his aunt and uncle's house it's not the most logical choice Hagrid's not the most logical uh, caregiver in this moment but he is a heck of a good protector and if somebody's gonna follow up uh, for Lord Voldemort which at this moment we don't know if they would or not not a bad idea to have Hagrid the shield between the baby and the Dursleys. Just saying. The second thing that we learned about his character is his secrecy. We've established that he's got a lot of information already about Voldemort, about Harry, about the blood magic, the sacrifice, the protection. He's not sharing any of it, even with Professor McGonagall or who we might call sometimes Prof. McGee. She's been his companion for decades at this point. Depending on your timeline acceptance, you know, in, in the canon in your mind, within, uh, whether it's within the seven books, Prof. McGee would have been working at Hogwarts with Dumbledore for over 20 years at this point. And if she could come here to Privet Drive to find him directly and ask him directly, you know, confront him basically about the rumors in the midst of a, a very important event in the wizarding world, their relationship had to be pretty close. Otherwise, would she be comfortable confronting him at all? You know, would he have just dismissed her right as he got there? 
he let her be a part of this very intimate moment. The key beginning phase of his master plan, he let her be there. If she isn't already, she becomes his right hand deputy head mistress at the school. They're close, yet he doesn't confide any of this to her. If you subscribe to the Fantastic Beasts canon, they would have been together for a lot longer. 70 some odd years at Hogwarts? And her cameo in the second movie suggested that she was already in his corner, ready to stand up for him against you know, the Ministry of Magic. They were basically sidekicks. She would have been there through confronting Grindelwald, through Tom Riddle at Hogwarts, the Chamber of Secrets the first time, the death of Moni Myrtle, the birth of the Order of the Phoenix, everything Prof. McGee would have been there for if you subscribe to the Fantastic Beast timeline. It's okay if you don't. There's still plenty in the seven-book series. But he doesn't share any of this master plan with her. He simply says they're leaving him there on that doorstep to be kidnapped by anyone for his own good so he doesn't grow up in the spotlight. These two core character traits ultimately define the Dumbledore character for the duration of the book series, which is a bit of foreshadow but we get it all laid for us like a perfect foundation in chapter one of sorcerer's stone speaking of foreshadow foreshadow our foreshadow segment is where we call out four things from the chapter that foreshadow something later in the series today we're going to start with harry's scar when professor Magano asks Dumbledore, if he can do anything with it, as in get rid of it, he says he wouldn't even if he could, because scars can be useful. We know that later in the story, this scar becomes a portal of sorts that connects Harry and Voldemort's minds, and ultimately becomes a key, almost the key, uh, for Harry to defeating Voldemort in the end. Useful indeed. The second thing we're going to foreshadow today is Sirius's bike, the motorbike uh, or motorcycle if you're in the States. It's just a name drop at this point, but Hagrid mentions borrowing the motorcycle from Sirius Black, who right about now is either being carted off to Azkaban or is in pursuit of Peter Pettigrew who ratted out Potters to Lord Voldemort. He's going after him to we assume kill him but Pettigrew ends up framing Sirius for the murder of himself and a bunch of muggles and then Sirius will be carted off to Azkaban Uh, and that's all happening literally as this chapter is taking place you know off page but we don't know anything about that right now we won't learn about it until book three the third thing that we would like to foreshadow uh, in this chapter is the Deluminator, or at this point in the story, the put-outer. Dumbledore uses it to turn off the streetlights and give some privacy, I guess, needed to leave a baby on a doorstep without anyone calling the police. Um, but we could harp on the fact that putting out streetlights in a suburban neighborhood doesn't really give you 
that much privacy, but in our story, uh, it goes pitch black and nobody could see anything outside because the streetlights were out. But anyways, the put outer or the deluminator, uh, give them the privacy that they need. Uh, it also becomes a pretty key object later in the series, not only putting out lights, but it also leads Ron back to Harry and Hermione to ultimately save Harry's life, retrieve the Sword of Gryffindor, kill one of the Horcruxes, particularly the Locket Horcrux, and ultimately get the trio back together so that they can go on in their journey to murdering a serial killer, which is ultimately what this book is about. Well, this series of books is about. I thought it just put out lights. Finally, the fourth thing that we would like to foreshadow uh, in this episode is the letter. So Dumbledore mentions that he wrote the Dursleys a letter. And while we never get to read it in the series, which honestly I feel like that's something that we should be more upset about uh, than, than what we are. That, that feels like a miss to me that it's not worked into the story for Harry to get to read it. You know, maybe that uh, would be something perhaps after the prince's tale, you know, before he heads into the forest for uh, the the sacrificial portion of the story. You know, what if he was able to, um, you know, read the letter Dumbledore had left it somewhere for him and uh, told Snape to tell Harry, and that was part of the prince's tale, and that led Harry from the pensive to go find the letter, read the letter, more waterworks for people reading. I don't know. Feels like a miss. We should have gotten this letter. But what we do learn later is that this letter kind of explains everything that happened, as well as that blood protection, the charm, the additional charm that Dumbledore put in place, as long as Harry can call number four of Privet Drive home, his protection from his mother's sacrifice is lasting while he is there. So it's kind of a big deal. And like I said, a, could have been uh, a really cool reveal later in the series. But those are our four things for this episode for our foreshadow segment. With that, let's see what could have changed in this chapter with our Game of Inches segment. A Game of Inches. For this episode's Game of Inches, this is where we, uh, where we harp on one decision that a character made or one small change that could have happened in, uh, in our episode that would impact and have a ripple effect across the entire series and perhaps change the entire outcome completely. So for this episode, in this chapter, we're going to focus on what if Dumbledore didn't decide to invoke the blood magic charm. And what I mean by this, there's something that Dumbledore did, and he mentions this in book five, uh, where he placed a charm on Harry. So presumably it is that the protection from the sacrifice that Lily made keeps Harry alive in the moment when Voldemort tries to kill him as a baby, but it's this charm that Dumbledore did that allows for that protection to extend or you know linger or stay with Harry as long as he can call number four Privet Drive home where his mother's blood resides in Aunt Petunia. So what if he didn't do that step? What if he just didn't decide to take Harry out of the wizarding world to number four Privet Drive and had a different you know a different plan? 
would Harry have been raised by Sirius? Would he have taken Harry instead of going after Peter and winding up in Azkaban? What would Sirius as a dad look like? Would he have matured, perhaps? Would he have become an even more accomplished wizard? Keep in mind that in this moment of the story, Sirius goes straight to Azkaban. And it's often said by people a lot smarter than me that the, a person's development when they're incarcerated kind of stops their emotional maturity and their, um, you know, their, their emotional development kind of ceases. Somebody who gets released from prison after being away for a while, there are, like I said, a lot of smarter people than me that would say that they kind of come out in the emotional maturity level that they went in. And so if we use that logic to the wizarding world, Sirius had been locked up for a dozen years when we meet him in book three. He obviously wasn't doing magic in Azkaban. You know, it's it's not like a prison movie that we would see today where they get yard time and, you know, people are out there fighting each other and lifting weights and stuff like that. He's He doesn't have his wand in Azkaban where he can just practice. Aside from his Animagus transformations, he wasn't able to do magic at all, we would presume, when he was away in Azkaban. So if magic is something that is honed and practiced and can potentially get rusty, he came out rusty. Yet, when he showed up at the Ministry of Magic to save Harry in Book 5, he was formidable against the Death Eaters. The only reason that Bellatrix, who is insane, <laughs> the only reason she was able to actually overtake him in that duel was his own arrogance. He laughed at her, told her, you know, he mocked her, he taunted her. He told her that she could do better than that, and she did. Because that split second that he took to mock her, to taunt her, slowed his reaction to her curse and sent him falling backwards through the veil to his death. What if his maturity and magical prowess, you know, wasn't stunted by being an Azkaban? How powerful could he have been? And how much more mature could he have been as a father to Harry? Would it matter? Would Harry have, you know, been some sort of child prodigy? who grew up as a savior, the boy who lived with all the wealth you could possibly imagine between the Black and the Potter vaults and uh, Gringotts? Would he have even been able to develop the key characteristics and the traits and values that are what lead him to be able to defeat Voldemort in the end? Bravery, friendship, selflessness, his sense of right and wrong that he has from the age of 11. Would he have become, you know, instead kind of like that, uh, want to be that rebel, that bad boy like Sirius always wanted to be? Would he have resented his fame, started lashing out? You know, how many child stars do we know of, you know, that ended up in rehab or, you know, locked up for some reason? Would that have been Harry? Would he have been able to even go on uh, to defeat Voldemort under those circumstances? Would he have even survived? Would a Death Eater like Bellatrix or Rodolphus or uh, Lucius or whoever else come after him instead of, you know, going after the Longbottoms? Which I believe that's why they went after them, right? Was to try to find 
Voldemort after he disappeared? Would they have instead tried to go after Harry if they knew that he was still in the wizarding world? Would it have been you know, months later, years later, that somebody tried to come after him? Would they have just tried to kill the child if he was in the wizarding world and visible, seen, and not taken out of the wizarding world to the muggle world, to number four Privet Drive, given the additional charm and protection that Dumbledore was able to do because Petunia took him in and essentially disappear for 10 years? What would the story we get be? How would that one end? Would the bad guy win? Would we have a completely different protagonist? Would Harry even be the protagonist in that you know, story? It's interesting. We don't have that story. We have this one. But one decision in this first chapter is what shapes the entire story that we have. With that, let's give away some meaningless awards, starting with the red card. Red card. This episode's red card segment. Uh, This is where we decide what character in the story that we want to throw out of the game. Uh, You would think that with this chapter being all from Vernon's perspective, and we pretty much see that he's pretty much an awful person, and it's all told from his point of view, that he would be the logical choice for the red card to be the worst character uh, in this chapter. But you can actually see throughout the entire chapter that it's actually his wife that he is afraid of. He wants other people to be afraid of him. He's yelling at them and he's doing all of the things that uh, we grow to expect from Vernon Dursley. But when he brings up her sister... Her nephew, Petunia, is cold, she is angry, and Vernon is shook. Therefore, in this episode, we're actually giving our red card to Petunia Dursley. Get her out of here. That was fun. Let's give away the game ball. The game ball. So you would think, again, the logical choice with this episode and with this chapter would be to give the game ball to Dumbledore. He's the main focus of the chapter. He's the main focus of the discussion that we've been having today and that he would be deserving. It's his plan. In a lot of ways, it's his story. But Hagrid, Hagrid is the one who got Harry safely out of Godric's Hollow, presumably took care of him for whatever the 24 hours that were missing between the time of the murder that happened and then getting placed on the doorstep. And he was positioned to be the one to protect him from any possible follow-up attacks that might happen. Dumbledore entrusted Hagrid to safely deliver our little chosen one, our little boy who lived, Harry Potter, the little baby version that we've barely even met yet, Dumbledore was entrusting his life to Hagrid. For that, he's our chapter's MVP and deserving of the game ball recognition, which actually leads us pretty nicely into our final segment for today, which is the fumble. Fumble. So the fumble. The fumble is the point in the episode where we call out plot holes, choices made that might be outside of what we would expect from characters, and other things that just simply don't make a ton of sense. Let's start with the missing 24 hours. 
A lot of people have talked about this, so we're not going to drag it on a whole lot, but the text makes it seem as though Hagrid just pulled Harry out of the house, yet around 24 hours had passed since his parents were murdered. So where did it go? We think we know what happened. We do. (laughs) Here at Belated Bench, we think that we know what happened right after the murders. Uh, And for that, check out Patreon for our How Did He Know Theory Corner episode. But aside from that, we can't assume that Harry was just, like, in his crib for an entire day, alone. Nor can we assume it took Hagrid an entire day to ride a flying motorcycle to the Dursleys. Was he just, like, chilling with a baby Harry, you know, changing diapers, feeding him from a bottle, maybe cuddling during nap time? I'm just going to let that visual sink in for a second before we move on to the next thing. So our, our next fumble is the, the how-did-you-know-it-was-me line in regards to Professor McGonagall as a cat. We've already laid out how long these two have known each other in either timeline that you're going to accept as canon. We also know she's registered with the Ministry as an Animagus, which is a public record of sort. So if someone like Hermione can easily look this up later on in our series, why would it be expected that it's some secret? Heck, we know that she also transforms in her classrooms. It's like a bit that she does for the class. She does it in book three and is like taken aback by the lack of applause before learning about how Trelawney predicted Harry's death. So why why the the moment with Professor McGonagall and Dumbledore and her being surprised that Dumbledore would know who she was in her animagus form when virtually anybody with access to whatever the wizarding library or you know hall of animagi would be uh, to to know who it was and who else is going to be sitting there waiting on him as a cat. Anyways, uh, the final fumble for this chapter, and usually we won't have this many, honestly, but uh, there's definitely been some, uh, there's been some talk that this was a difficult chapter uh, for the author to write and to, to get things started. And I think, I think that's kind of why we see a few extra fumbles than what we come to uh, expect from this particular book series. But finally, it's, it's the doorstep. It's been beaten to death, so we're just going to say it briefly. But you left a baby on the front step to be stumbled upon by, you know, the person who lives there when she's putting out the milk bottles, which was that even a thing in the 90s? I grew up in the 90s. We bought milk from the grocery store. Maybe they meant milk carton because that's exactly where this kid's face would be if this was the real world. But no, uh, we have uh, we have baby Harry on a doorstep, ready to be kidnapped by anybody, um, where he's stumbled upon by Mrs. Dursley. That wraps up our fumble segment. With that, we've reached the end of a very long and very robust first episode of Belated Binge. Uh, we may combine some chapters in the future, uh, but there was obviously a lot of unpacked in this, or a lot to unpack, rather, uh, in this first chapter. So thank you for hanging through it with us. A shout out to our producer, Jack, who we work like a dog. Remember to follow and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. If you enjoyed the show, please, five stars. Help us uh, move up in the, in the 
podcast rankings, if you will, uh, and be discovered by others. Uh, become a patron over on Patreon for early access and exclusive content that we're releasing over there, like the Theory Corners mentioned today. Uh, we're also on social media at Belated Binge on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And our show segments are also going to be available on YouTube. For our next episode, if you're reading along, we're going to tackle the second chapter of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, The Vanishing Glass. Otherwise, we'll see you next time on the Belated Binge Podcast. Explainiarmus. It's time to disarm your reluctancy and explain how you can support this podcast. Belated Binge is a fully independent production. I read the books, write the script, record the episode, edit the recording, pick and produce the sounds, manage the content schedule, manage social media, promote the podcast, and feed producer Jack. Any costs from equipment to software to website development, marketing, any of that comes out of my pocket. And despite how many times I've been told we look alike, I'm no Harry Potter. No half-giant has ever taken me to a bank full of cash and said, Hey, you're rich! Having a podcast takes a lot, and it's not easy, so your support is literally the only thing that keeps the show going. And there are a few key ways you can support the podcast. First, word of mouth is absolutely huge. If you enjoy the show, please tell every one of your Potterhead friends to give it a shot. Also... Many of the pod players now support a rating and review function. Apple, Spotify, Good Pods, Podchaser, just to name a few. And it takes about four seconds to leave a five-star rating on the app. This can be greatly impactful. If you have more than four seconds, and the app that you're using supports written reviews, that's even better. Think about how reliant we are on reviews. Whether you're buying something new or deciding what book to read next, we're always looking at ratings and reviews to weigh into our decision. Podcasts are no different, and your positive review could be the difference in someone discovering the show and deciding to give it a chance. Another great way to support the show is engaging in the conversation yourself, whether it be answering the specific questions I pose during the show or on social media. Maybe you just have a theory of your own or you want to leave some feedback. I'd love to hear from you and maybe even share it on the podcast. You can submit your thoughts by leaving a voicemail on the website, belatedbinge.com. Just click the little leave a voicemail icon on the page that you visit. If you don't like the sound of your own voice, you can also respond in written form by using the contact form on the website, leaving comments or DMs on social media. My handle is belatedbinge across Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can also email belatedbinge at gmail.com. The final and perhaps most impactful form of support is to become a patron on Patreon. I've made a ton of updates to Patreon membership benefits this season and some goals to shoot for as well. There are currently six tiers available designed to fit any budget level ranging from $1 to $20 with all the bells and whistles. So, Benefits range from early access to ad-free versions of the show, recognition on the website, bonus episodes, patron shoutouts, show prep notes, insider participation, binge award participation, input on show content and future benefits, a drawing for a physical gift sent from me to you and others. 
I've also set some growth goals that'll unlock new benefits for existing tiers and maybe even adding some more stuff as we go. The first goal is to get 10 total patrons, at which point I will start a patrons discord server. However you choose to support the show, thank you. I truly appreciate it.